You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. God has been so good to bless this church with the amount of talent that's here, all the way from um, you know soloists, um, guitarists, and pianists, and, and all those folks. Um, I was kind of waiting on Paul to get out here, um, but he he told me that if if I went long today, he'd blow the whistle, and so um, so I want, I want to be really careful with time this morning. Um, yeah, God God has some specific things in mind and and a story to tell. When we read God's Word and go through it, we understand that if we start at the beginning, go all the way to the end, that somewhere we're in there, and. And the, the song that the choir did, that, that whole idea of bringing God's glory, we have to realize that as God writes his story and we get to participate in that, that he is bringing all things to a culmination where we get to stand before him and say, God, not just in this life, but in forever, you receive glory. You're worthy of praise. And when we forget that, when we forget how much God deserves in the midst of all the things that we go through and all the things that we think about, when we forget that, we kind of shortchange what God is due. And when we read God's Word, we need to understand that all of it is for His glory. And we can go through here and say, I don't understand how God gets glory out of that. But if we take it away, does it really mess up the story of God and what he's about to do and what he is doing and what he has done. So I think as we look at Scripture, one of the things that's really important for us to understand is the context of the passage. Context is so important. When I was at CIU or Columbia International, um, I had a professor. He was president of the seminary. And, and one of the things that he drilled in us just about every day in one of the classes was context is king. And he would say that over and over again. He would say, look at this passage, context is king. When you look and try and figure out what it says, context is king. And so he would just kind of drive that home for us so that we would understand that when the context of a passage is, is not taken into consideration, when we don't look at it and understand it through the context of the writer or through the context of history, then we end up getting poor doctrine, we end up with improper application of God's Word. And you've seen that. You can go to a passage and somebody will, somebody will preach something and you'll say, that's not what that means. But, they, but it's the wording and we take the wording and we start to jump into a, another place. And so context is really important. And it helps us to, to ultimately not compromise God's Word or compromise that which would lead us to a good, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. We compromise context. We compromise the ability to have a, a good, solid relationship with God. One author wrote about the necessity of knowing context. He said, without context, we immediately jump in our heads to what we want to say next based on the very first few words we hear from the other person. You ever been in that situation? 
Or somebody says three or four words and you go, I know what they're going to say. Therefore, I'm going to start working on my response before they get all the way through. It's like this. If I said this phrase to you, someone is full of baloney. Okay? Now, you may not have heard that phrase. You may have heard it, and there's all kinds of different ways you can say that. Someone's full of baloney. It can mean a couple of different things. It could either mean that person might not be telling the truth, or that person's had enough lunch meat that their belly is full. Right? That person's full of baloney. And the context is everything. Because when you start talking about context, if you're talking about, hey, I had a ham sandwich, but that person, they had baloney, and they're full of baloney. It means something completely different from telling a story about you know, maybe sitting on the beach and the SWAT team came and, and came up on us and snuck up on us and pulled AK-47s out and was holding us hostage till, we got, till they got the truth. Completely different, right? By the way, the second story is my dad and my dad's cousin's story. So, just so you understand, context is everything. In Nehemiah, and we're going to be in Nehemiah for the next six weeks, that'll lead us all the way up through um, or to Vacation Bible School. Nehemiah is one of those books when we have to understand this, the historical context of Nehemiah, but also understand how it plays into God's story. Uh, Nehemiah was, and we learned about this at the very end of chapter one, it says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. And we go, Okay, what king? How is this working? And so I want to just kind of run a quick history, very quick history, and so there's going to be a lot of skipped parts in this. So you go, well, that's not the whole story. I know that. If we did that, we'd be here till 3 or 4 o'clock, and then we'd get to Nehemiah. So, so just this real brief um, flyover, okay? So real quick. So we're going to start with Saul. We'll just go to Saul because the people wanted a king, and God chose Saul. He was a very impressive man. He was the kind of kind of had that demeanor of a Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, you know? Kind of big guy set apart. He he was head and shoulders above everybody else, and everybody kind of looked at that person and said, "Wow. Manly man." You know, I don't I don't know if he had lots of hair, but let's just say, you know, just manly man. He could do it. And so he becomes king, but he messes up. And he, he goes to offer a sacrifice in the place where there should have been a priest. And, and God says, oh, well, that's not right. And so he rejects Saul. And another king is chosen for Israel. Um, we, get, we get through that and says, I've rejected Saul. And then it talks about the choosing of David. And so Samuel goes to see Jesse and, and Samuel... And Jesse bring all the sons before Samuel to choose the next king, and they get all the way done, and David's not there. And he said, you've got to have one more. There's got to be somebody else because none of these measure up. And he said, well, the runt out in the field, he's the only one I got left. And so they bring David, and he becomes king. Now, there's a whole sequence of things that happens in David's life, and, and God brings about the rising of him to this position of king. It was an anointing by God, but confirmed by the people. Because David was a guy who had killed thousands, and songs were written about him more so than even Saul, and so Saul chased after him, and David becomes king. And David is not a perfect person. David messes up royally. 
He sits on his balcony when other kings are out to war. He sits on his balcony. He says, I like her. And he calls out Bathsheba. And in the effort to have a relationship with Bathsheba, seeks to have Bathsheba's husband killed, put him on the front lines so he'll die. It's a tragic story. It's something that Hollywood, you, you would think, would jump on. But David is a king, and eventually David goes, and if you read Psalm 51, you get a little of the heart of David as he comes before God and says, God, I come, come before you confessing that I've messed up, and I want you to return the joy of my salvation to me. So David is a, a man whose heart was that sought after God, but he was flawed. And there were places in his life where he was weak. His son takes the throne after him. And Solomon, and we know a little bit about Solomon. Solomon was extremely rich. And he was wise. Scripture calls him the wisest man who ever lived. And even though he had tons of wives, I have a hard time fitting the wise and the wise part of that with a whole bunch of wives. But it's is what Scripture reads for us or tells us. Um, Solomon was the guy who built the temple, and it was ornate. It was tremendous. And he built this temple, and then he, he writes, and he's got some sons that don't follow uh, this prescription of adhering to God's commands. And so what ends up happening is Solomon gives up the throne, and his sons end up dividing the kingdom, and it becomes the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is known as Judah, the northern kingdom known as Israel, and they stay divided for a period of time. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is taken over um, by the Assyrians. The Assyrians attack, they take over Samaria, and basically the northern kingdom is taken into exile. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom is also attacked, but they're attacked by the Babylonians, and the southern kingdom, or the folks in the south, they get taken into exile and under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And we read a little bit about that as we go through Daniel and, and some of those passages. And we read a lot in the prophets about how God takes a nation and leads them to a certain place. And because they continue to abandon God's word and abandon his commands, he takes them into exile and uses a pagan nation to bring them or to get their attention and to get their focus back on who he is. It's a long process because even the process of or the promise of the exile is 70 years. And so we go through the Assyrian and the Babylonian Empire, and we end up with the Persian Empire. And Cyrus, who is one of the kings of Persia, actually allows for the return, the first return of exiles back to the, to the area around Jerusalem. It's not a complete return, but it's a partial return. And so that takes place. You could read Ezra and Nehemiah kind of together, and you can kind of put this picture together of these returns that come from the, the area of Persia, from Susa, the capital, and, and that area coming back to Jerusalem. And there is a struggle that takes place in the nation of Israel as they begin to try and put that nation back together. It's not complete. In 516 B.C., they finish the temple, but it's not to the level of, of grandeur that Solomon's temple was. 
But they finished that temple, but everything around it is still in disarray. And the folks that live around the Jerusalem area do not want Jerusalem to be rebuilt or to be secured. And so they seek their best besides the temple. They seek to destroy everything else around it. And so if you're a part of the group that was taken into exile, or you weren't taken into exile and you lived there, you lived in an area that was just vulnerable, that it was just open for attack. And we're going to look at this passage and we're going to pick up Nehemiah's story in 445 B.C. with this, the idea of returning back to Jerusalem. It's under the rule of Artaxerxes. And we learn about Nehemiah's position in that last verse. He says, Now I was cupbearer to the king, that's King Artaxerxes in the Persian Empire. And God gives us this glimpse in Nehemiah 1 of not only who Nehemiah is, but what is going on in the nation of Israel and how God is going to put together his story and continue his story among this people that he has chosen. And so I want to read Nehemiah 1 this morning. And today we're going to talk about broken walls and gates. We're going to talk about a broken heart and spirit, the confession of reality, and then chosen to succeed. So let's, um, let's read Nehemiah 1 and understand that... Um, there are critical responses to brokenness that we need to learn from this passage. So Nehemiah chapter 1 says this. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now in the, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah, that, that area around Jerusalem, some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. So those that had stayed around the Jerusalem area, and those that had gone back as part of one of those returns from exile. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, Nehemiah speaking, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night. On behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. It says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. So it's the promise of God about not following God. It says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to, to cause my name to dwell. So even though you're scattered, you seek me, I'll bring you back. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, 
I beseech you or beg you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's talking about the king. Grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. God, as we think about your story and what you are doing in this passage, Father, remind us of your bigness. God, remind us of of how you work with people, how you lead people and guide. God, how you've even protected your chosen people in this passage. And although you sent them to exile, you're returning them. And Father, you've put on Nehemiah's heart, we get a glimpse of his insides. You, you allow us to see that. And Father, I pray that as we look at this passage, that you would reveal to us how we should respond to how our lives are and the lives around us. And so Father, I pray that you would teach us during this time. God, hide me. And allow your voice to be loud in this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, we get a glimpse of Nehemiah and he gets word. So he's, he's in Susa, the capital. And while he's there, some guys return from Judah and begin to share with Nehemiah about the condition of the area around Jerusalem. It's, it's pretty interesting to, to listen to that because they've traveled about 800 miles to get there and Nehemiah gets this report. And the first thing we have to understand is we have to understand what's broken. So Nehemiah gets this word, the walls and the gates are broken. In verse 3 it says, They came to me, the remnant there in the, in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and, distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So the walls are broken, the gates, the gates are burned, and essentially there's no protection for, for that city. You see, the walls around the city were as much a part of the defense of the city as any army would, would be. And so the, the army, or the walls, is just not there. There's nothing to protect them. And without the walls and the gates, the city is vulnerable to attack. But it's more than just vulnerable to attack. It's vulnerable to being controlled by others. See, everybody around them wanted the gates and the walls to stay down because in that way they could exert their influence on the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital. It was the place of of God's presence. It was the place where people gained their strength as a nation. And so when the walls and the gates are broken down, the agenda for those outside the walls is control. And the loyalties are set by outside forces. So everything that they may have wanted to do is set by those that control from outside because there is no protection. But probably more important than the gates and the walls are the hearts and the spirit. The heart and the spirit of the people. It says that they are distressed. They, they're essentially aware of their exposure. It is a slavery of sorts. And although there are no bars or chains with the, the people that live in that area, they are slaves to those that are around them. 
So they have to do what everybody around them says they should do. And they're missing their independence or they're missing the ability to say, God, I, and this is kind of, kind of stretchy, but, but they're missing the ability to say, God, I praise you because I understand I'm protected. They don't have the physical protection surrounding them. So they're distressed. They're hurting. There's a part of them that is just in turmoil, and essentially they are, they are depressed. They've attempted to build the walls and the gates before, but every attempt at doing that has failed. So you just sit back and do nothing. They're in reproach, and that just means they're in, it's an embarrassment. They're poorly representing their heritage and Almighty God. And so if you look at them, you would wonder how big their God is. Now, we could do the same thing. You could, you could drive around this area. You could drive around Durham or, or Orange County, Durham County, Orange County, or anywhere you want to go and look at churches, and you would say, what faith are they showing or what are they doing that's showing that they have a faith in a big God? And you would wonder, how big is their God? Churches that go through turmoil or struggles and say, how big is your God? And we could sit back and we could do that. But in this particular case, there, was, there were outside forces that did ha- didn't have a relationship with God that could sit there and go, your God's not that big. Look, you can't even put up walls or gates. He's not protecting you in this. And so they become a people of ridicule because they can't establish their own independence and their own security around, their, around that city. There's guilt, there's shame, and there's frustration. Spiritually depressed. And in those times, it's not really a time to retreat from God, but in this case, rather, they should go to God. But in all those attempts, it just seemed futile. And so their hearts and their minds are in a bad spot. So they're in great distress and reproach. And so what happens is Nehemiah hears this. The weight of that just comes down on his shoulders. He just feels it. I don't know why Nehemiah, we don't read of him doing anything before this or we're getting to him about the condition of the people before this. But in this case, he gets word of this and I, I don't know, for Nehemiah, I could have wondered, you know, why are you angry or why aren't you angry that the people have just let it go? Why get frustrated at this point? Why not just ignore it at this point? You're 800 miles removed from that situation. How many of us care about what was happening in Guatemala or Hawaii with the, with the volcanoes? That's miles and miles away. We don't have to, do we? Yet if our heart, if part of our heart is centered on one of those places, if we know somebody there, then we go, oh, I care. I'm worried about that. We've been to Guatemala. Um, Deb and I have been there. Our family has been there. Um, Tim and I are going in, in August to look at some things in Guatemala. And part of that, the whole idea of just being connected to that means that when that volcano hit and there were over 100 people killed, it hurt part of me. It hurt part of my family. Because there's a part of us that's invested in that country. 
But we could go around and say, I know of something that happened over here that's way far away, and because it happened over there, my heart still hurts, even though I'm far removed, because a piece of me is connected to that. Nehemiah's heart is connected to Jerusalem and the people of, of Judah. And so his heart hurts. When I heard these words, I sat down, wept, and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He was hurting. And for some reason, Nehemiah understood in his heart the urgency of the situation. And so his response was saturated with his relationship with God. A a relationship with God that was consistent, although he was in a very pagan land. He was consistent in that relationship, and it was a relationship of integrity. Because he comes before God, and he says, God, my heart hurts for that, that area. My heart hurts for those people. And I need to do something. So he comes before God. There is a response in Nehemiah's life and in his heart that we need to get as we look at brokenness around us. We cannot live in this culture and look around us and say it doesn't matter. We hold words of truth. 2 Corinthians 5 says, doesn't it say we are ambassadors? We represent God, and when we say we don't care about the world around us, we're basically saying, guys, you can go to hell because I don't care, and I don't care if you have a relationship with God. I've heard that phrase used before in a cussing context, and it is an awful phrase to use because what you're saying is, I don't care if you know God or not. If you want to spend eternity burning in hell, I don't care. And if we have that attitude among ourselves, then, then our heart is not broken by the reality of the culture around us. And then we question, do we even have a relationship with God, understanding the grace and mercy of God that He's bestowed on us? We ought to be just like Nehemiah and care about the culture in which we live. The second thing I want us to understand are the responses. Not just the brokenness, but the responses. First thing is confession of reality. Confession of reality. There's a very very real thing happening in Jerusalem that Nehemiah hears about while he's in the capital 800 miles away. If I said to you that it is hot outside, and it is, it's, it's fairly toasty outside the walls of this building. So we enjoy the air conditioning. When you walk out, you're going to get blasted with some heat, and you're going to go, it's hot out here. But what if you walked out the doors of this church at whatever time we get out today, and you walk out and say, man, it is cool. Does anybody have a jacket? People will look at you and go, what is wrong with you? And say, blood's not flowing or something's not, not right. Because you would say, that's not reality. What Nehemiah is faced with here is reality, and so he confesses the reality. The first thing he confesses is about who God is. He says, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness of those who love him and keep his commandments. So we understand God is a preserver of those that love him and keep his commandments. But then he goes on to state the reality. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. Here's the phrase, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. 
I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah comes before God. He says, God, I understand you're great. You protect those that belong to you. And Nehemiah could have looked at the historic part of this and said, it's not my fault. I wasn't there when this exile took place. It's not my fault. I don't think I did anything wrong. It's not my fault. Or even gone to the place and said, it's the Assyrians' fault. They're the ones who attacked. They're the blame. Or the Babylonians. It's their fault. They came and they got us and they took us into exile. And then when they took us into exile, a whole bunch of folks left and the walls and gates have been down and the people are suffering because of the Babylonians. But that's not what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah says that the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the, the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I am my father's house, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, nor your statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. The nation walked away from God. The nation departed God's presence. It wasn't that God took a hike and went somewhere. It was the nation walked away and said, we don't want to follow you, God. And Nehemiah is calling it out. We could go over to Jeremiah as we, as we look at that and understand that when they got taken into exile in Jeremiah 29, God takes them there and says, you ought to prosper there, but I'm going to bring you back. And we'll, we'll read that in just a moment. But we understand that God had a purpose in taking them away. God had, had a purpose in taking them into exile. And Nehemiah owned the failure of the nation, and he owned the failure of himself personally in saying, I am broken, and I have sinned, and my people have sinned. We've not kept the commandments of you, God. If we had, this wouldn't have happened. The judgment of God was meted out by God's sovereignty and fulfillment of the covenant conditions. And so he takes him to a land. He says, you prosper there, but you're going to be away from the promised land for a period of time. God used pagan nations to enact judgment. Don't think he won't do it again. This is what Jeremiah, this is what it says in Jeremiah 7. And we read it, and we've talked about this, usually in the context of a graduation. But, but if we look at it, verse 7 says, Seek the welfare of the city which I have sent you into exile, and pray for the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare. For in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So what he's saying is, you're going, you prosper, you make sure you prosper, and as you prosper, the nation will prosper. But there are people, there are people that are prophesying among you that will say, this exile is going to be shorter. He's saying, don't listen to them. I have set the time. And you're not coming back before that time. And then verse 10 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, will fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to, and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, and when you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather from you all nations and from all the places where I have driven you. So God says, I'm going to restore you, and I'm taking you there to teach you, to help you to mature. They were a people that were spoiled. Spoiled in corruption. That word corrupt just means that. I've, I've been on, and Scott, you identify with this, go to a World Changers trip, and somebody else provides the food for you. We did a project in Atlanta one year. And we got there, we did all the stuff, we, we went to lunch, um, a local guy was providing the lunch. I didn't know him. He didn't know me, but he brought these sandwiches in. He brought some yogurt and different things, and it's about 90 degrees, and we've been working all morning and playing on working that afternoon, and what he brought was he brought things that were out of date. And I tell you, you make a getaway with out of date on yogurt for a short time, but you cannot get yogurt that's out of date for a long time and plan on serving it to students. Lunch meat doesn't work well either. And so as much as we wanted to go back to work that afternoon, there was a great need for small rooms. Now let you figure that out. Special furniture. Um, we did not work that afternoon because things were spoiled. You cannot continue to, to do the things that you want to do when you live in spoil or corruption. And what God had shown... Nehemiah said, we have been corrupt before you, God. We have not kept your commands. Now I confess that brokenness before you. So he says, they fasted and prayed, come before you with, with a conviction that we are responsible for that. The next thing that I want us to understand that is that we've been chosen to succeed. It's not that God wants us to fail. It's God wants us to succeed. Romans 11 says that we've been grafted into the vine. We are part of God's family. And the idea is that we are grafted into Him to produce good fruit. We're grafted into Him to produce what God gets glory from. And so Nehemiah is going to have a bold request in this. And we're going to get to that in chapter 2, but he says something at the very near the end of chapter 1. It says, Lord, I beseech you that your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. So God, I, I need you to hear in the prayer of your servant who delights to revere your name. So God, I want you to hear me, but I also want you to know my heart is for you. And then he says, and make your servant successful today. We get that. God, make me successful. And then he says this phrase, and grant him compassion before this man. Essentially what he's saying is, help me to plead well and not die. He's cupbearer to the king. And that is a great weight of responsibility when you're cupbearer to the king. It is not a good thing to go in sad-faced before King Artaxerxes. It can cause some trouble for you. And so he says, help me before the king because the burden of what is happening in Judah is on my heart. And because that burden's there, God, I ask that you would grant me success and help me to move forward. I want us to do something for just a minute because 
Um, the news of conviction that we read about in Nehemiah is the same kind of thing that takes place when we go somewhere on a mission trip. Our hearts are burdened. Tim and Laura are going to Kenya in just a few weeks. And, and really, they're still working on support for, for the ministry, for going. But their heart is there. There are things that God wants them to accomplish there. Their heart is already set there. So as much as they love here, heart is still is there. There's a group that's going to West Virginia come Friday. And I'm just going to ask you guys just to come up here for a second and stand across the front. So, so move quickly. That's good. That's quick. This group that's going to West Virginia, they're, they're not going to West Virginia because they want to go sightseeing. I'm pretty sure about that. There's going to be work involved in going to West Virginia. And so I want us to pray for them very quickly because as God has put the burden, the brokenness for West Virginia and that church and what is happening in that area up there, as God has given them a broken heart for that area, God is going to use them to affect that area. And so we're going to pray. We're going to kind of come like a, a Nehemiah and say, God, I pray that you would give them good success, that you would keep them safe, that you would do everything that you need to do in and through this team to accomplish what you want to accomplish within your story. And so, so I'm going to pray, and I would ask that you just pray with me for just a moment as we pray over this team. They leave Friday. And so don't forget them come Friday and the week following that. You pray for them that everything that they need and everything that God lays on their heart would bring Him glory and be accomplished. God, we thank You for these folks that have committed their lives to go to West Virginia on this mission. And Father, although there is a plan for this mission trip, a plan to accomplish certain things, God, we also know that mission trips, by the inherent nation, nature of mission trips, there has to be flexibility. And so, God, we pray that you would just give them the heart that allows them to serve with a flexible nature that ultimately just wants to bring glory to your name. And so, God, I pray for travel mercies. God, I pray you would teach them even in that. But, God, you would give them safety as they go and as they return. God, that you would give them a sense of unity among the team, but also with the church that's there. That, we would under, that they would understand and we would understand that it's just about the kingdom. It's not about individuals or a particular venue. But it's about the kingdom of God. And so, Father, give them the energy that they need for the week and the health that they need for the week that you would be glorified in and through them as they serve with open hands and open hearts. God, we love you and we praise you. We ask that you would work for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you. And when you guys get back, we want to hear from you, okay? So just kind of mark it on your calendar or in your hearts or something like that, okay? So God is going to take them off, and their hearts are broken, much like Nehemiah's heart was broken. So, so what do you do? We have to admit three different things, and we're going to go through these very quickly. The first thing that we have to admit when there is brokenness, our response is that we need God. First thing is that we need God. 
God's people are not called to accomplish what man can do. We're called to accomplish what God can do. And that requires faith. We trust Him. For 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction with, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. We despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Trust goes to God. Any particular need that we have, trust has to go to God. And just mark it, Isaiah 49, 5 and 6 is the same way. That God, you are a light to the nation, so that, and he says, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God, help us to be a light to the nations around us. And that God is faithful, Isaiah 49, 7, it's the prelude to that other part. It says, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy, Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. God has chosen you to accomplish something within his story. Nehemiah knew because of history that rebuilding the walls and the gates was an impossible task apart from God. Nehemiah needs God. We need God. Second thing is that we represent God. Mentioned it before that we are ambassadors. Within that Persian empire, Nehemiah was an ambassador for God. The people that would come from Persia that had been exiled and that would return and those that would build the wall eventually and the gates would represent God, we too represent God wherever we go. The third thing is that we are responsible for the generations that follow. That's a hard thing because we want what we want now. We want our comfort and the desires of our heart. But I can't help to think in looking at Nehemiah that he's not thinking about him. He's worried about the gates and the walls. He's worried about God's reputation. But there are generations that will follow that need to see the gates and the walls. There are generations that follow Nehemiah and that group of people that lived at that time that need to know who God is. So we are responsible for generations that follow. Scott preached last week and talked about the responsibility of parents. That whole idea of parents, it's your responsibility to do what Deuteronomy 6 says, and that's lead your family to know who God is and disciple within your family. And, and he mentioned some stuff, and I'll take, take it just a little bit further. When we allow things of the world, the culture in which we live, to take the place of God at any particular point, we discount what it means to have a relationship with God. If it's okay to skip church, then I guess it's okay to skip God, right? If we convey that message to children, why would we expect children that grow up and go away to college to not skip church on Sunday or not skip a discipleship group? Why would we expect different from what they've learned from parents or grandparents? We have a responsibility to be the parents and grandparents that God's called us to be to teach our children and disciple our children. You are not, and just as a, a side note, you will not do it perfectly. It doesn't really matter. You will not do it perfectly. But we trust God that God will lead us 
and help us to grow our children. When we say, we've messed up, it's a brokenness that we own. And we go before God and say, God, yeah, I messed up. I didn't do all the things I was supposed to do as a parent, but God, please protect my child. God, come and surround them with your angels and bring protection on on them and help them to desire you as much as I desire for them to know you. Because you can't turn back the clock. You can still have a brokenness. Nehemiah understood that the generation that would follow him and the generation that would follow that would be faced with the same challenges and needed to know who God was and is. Nehemiah is a fascinating leader, living in a very diverse culture and called to obedience and faith. He understood his need for God. And so I want to ask you, do you understand your need for God? Do you? Or can you live without Him? If you can go through this week without God, can you really say you need Him? We need God. We need God because of the brokenness of sin. And if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're still under the weight of that sin. And I would invite you to come to Christ and and understand the freedom that is available through Christ. What He did on the cross for you. You see, coming to Christ is salvation. It means that you can have a personal, loving relationship with Almighty God. And it's the greatest feeling to be out from the way to that. But you're still, you may still struggle with sin. And all of us may be in that spot. And we say, I still have a brokenness in me that I need to bring before God. It may be your own personal brokenness, but it may be the brokenness of a child or a grandchild. You say, I see that, and I'm broken for them, and I want to come before you, God, just confessing that I've messed up and that they've messed up. And God, I need you to bring restoration to that. And so do you sense a need for God? The other thing that I want us to think about is our responsibility to the generations that follow. I don't want to discount that. And so you may want to come and pray this morning or pray where you're at. To me, it doesn't matter. It's between you and God. It's to pray that God would secure the generation that we have, but would help them to understand and follow God with a way that affects the generation that follows. God's reputation was at stake, and I don't want to be counted among a people that are in great distress and reproach, that our walls and our gates are broken down, but I want us to be a people that follow God with a passion that is unwavering and that the culture around us sees a living God. So let's pray. And as God calls you this morning, respond, I invite you to do that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are a great God. And Father, the responsibility, maybe even the responsibility for us in this room is before us, and you call us to be a broken people before you. But God, you also remind us that you are a restorer and that you're a sustainer. And so God, I pray that you would bring restoration 
where there is a need, that you would bring salvation for those that may not know you as Savior. And God, that our, not just our ears would be attentive to your voice during these next few moments, but our hearts would be as well. And so God, I pray that you would work as you need to among us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.